morning we're back in the Olivet Discourse. That's our main focus, actually. And I want to do some things this morning that still introduce us to the, the book. And those of you that have been around here or have taken the class that I teach called Hermeneutics, which are principles of interpreting Scripture, what are the three main principles in hermeneutics or interpreting Scripture? Number one, context. Number two, context. Number three, context. All right. You haven't even been here and you know that. Right, great. Well, that's what we'll be doing this morning. I think it's important that we have the context of the Olivet Discourse, so that's essentially what I'm going to focus in on. Gave a little bit of short overview of it last time. We only spent a few minutes on it. So I'd like to somewhat expand that and give a little more detail, because it's very important. One of the problems with the Olivet Discourse, it's not easy to understand. It's not one of the easiest passages of Scripture. In fact, it's probably one of the more difficult ones. Part of the problem is people don't understand the context. And if you don't have the context, then every passage is difficult to understand. Every passage is perhaps even under not understandable just on the surface there. So let's develop a little bit of the context. Just a little reminder of what we've looked at in the introduction. The Gospel of Matthew, the main theme of the whole Gospel is presenting Jesus as the Messiah. In the Old Testament, the Messiah was going to come and he was going to rule as a king. He was going to establish a kingdom Israel would be the focus. Israel would be the main people in that kingdom. Now, the kingdom in the Old Testament describes a kingdom that is more broad-based than Israel, but Israel was going to be basically in a leadership position. Well, if Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, what Jews need to know in the first century, and the Gospel of Matthew is primarily written to a Jewish audience. What did they need to know? Concerning Jesus. Well, is he a king? As the Old Testament prophesied, is he in fact the Messiah? Then kind of a secondary question was, if he is uh, the Messiah and he gave adequate proof, he performed all of the miracles that were required, he fulfilled all of the prophecies, well, not all of the prophecies, but most of the prophecies concerning some aspects of what Messiah would be all about, And one of the aspects was, well, if he was the Messiah, if he was the king, then if Jesus is Messiah, what happened to the kingdom? Because if he was the Messiah, he was supposed to establish the kingdom. Well, one of the things that Matthew does, and it builds up to it, I gave you a lot of the passages, but the main things that the Olivet Discourse is teaching us is that the kingdom is postponed. The kingdom is delayed and that the Messiah is going to return. In other words, Jesus is coming back. When he came the first time, he only fulfilled some of the prophecies. And when he comes the second time, he's going to fulfill all of the other prophecies, particularly the prophecies pertaining to the kingdom. So that's the main issue of the Olivet Discourse. Don't lose sight of that. That is what we will look at this morning to see Jesus is going to explain what happened to that generation because they rejected him and after this passage, historically, they crucified him. They crucified the Messiah, they crucified the king. So what happened to the kingdom? Was it lost? And throughout history, throughout church history, there have been a variety of ways that people have tried to interpret the kingdom. The most common way that most of the denominations hold to is that the kingdom equals the church. I think that's not what the Bible teaches. And I think we get most of that from the Olivet Discourse. In fact, you have to violate a lot of hermeneutical principles to get there, to get to that conclusion. But if you are consistent in your hermeneutics, you'll end up with, I think, a proper interpretation. So this is what this whole discourse is all about. So in Matthew, just a quick review... Jesus' ministry at the beginning is somewhat public, on display. People are responding. He's performing miracles, becoming increasingly popular. The crowds recognize that he is Messiah. 
they're ready to make him king, at least the crowds. At the same time, the Jewish leaders, they're threatened, they're fearful, they are skeptical about Jesus, and as a result, there's growing opposition. And there's a climax in chapter 12 where they plot to kill him. And you can look at verse 14. And then from there, in terms of the Jewish leaders, that opposition continues to increase in a downward direction. And we're going to look at, very briefly, 21 and 22. I want you to see this, because this sets the stage for 23, which we'll concentrate on, and it'll set the stage for the Olivet Discourse. It's the setting, if you will. So they basically reject him on a final basis, and it's just a matter of days. So from 21 to the end of the Gospel, it's talking about just a few days in there, the last few days in the life of Christ, that eventually end in the crucifixion. Make sense? So the opposition continues, and it climaxes with a crucifixion, or Jesus on the cross. And also in Matthew, we have a private ministry that Jesus continues with these disciples, and what he's doing is preparing them for his death, preparing them for the ministry that they will have after he dies, and after he dies, a ministry that will extend, and from our perspective, has extended for 2,000 years, at least. And the Alvent Discourse looks at the end of that age, and the beginning of another age that Jesus will establish when he returns. So, after a resurrection, then the disciples begin a ministry that they are already prepared for with things like the Olivet Discourse and the latter half, or the latter portion of the Gospel of Matthew. So that's the Gospel of Matthew on one slide. We're going to look at the setting, or the context of the Olivet Discourse. And first of all, let's look at very quickly, and I'd like for you to read these, some of you. First of all, you have to understand, this is that chapter that I just showed you on that other slide, 21 and 22, the rejection by the nation. Now, the nation is represented by the leaders. The leaders essentially reject their Messiah and eventually, obviously, crucify him. So, let's take a look at some passages here. Somebody look in chapter 21. Who wants to do those two? Jim? And 22, somebody up, Connie, why don't you do uh, 22, 15, then skip to 23. You want to do, uh, do the last two there, 34, 35, and then do 46. All right. First of all, let's take a look at, somebody read 23. Jim, read 23. 21, 23. When he entered the temple, James Christ and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Okay, where is it located? This verse tells us. Most of what's going on from this passage into the beginning of the Olivet Discourse is where? In the temple. This is a reconstruction, this is a model that exists in Israel. Now they've moved this whole model to a different location from the photograph here. Uh, when I was there, it was at this hotel, a tourist hotel, but they've moved it to a more permanent and actually a better location. But all the model is there, and it's intact. And archaeologists believe that this is a very, very accurate reconstruction of the whole city of Jerusalem, in the first century. And this is what they believe the temple looked like. Now, don't be deceived. The doors there, they're oversized. They're probably 12 foot high. So this is a, a large complex. And we're going to see in Matthew 24, it was a spectacular place. It was very, very beautiful. And this was the focus, the center of all Jewish life. So this is the location. Josephus, a first century historian, Jewish historian, says that on, on an occasion like the Passover, that's the Passover feast, uh, that's the setting of all of these passages in here. That is the time in terms of when these are taking place. Josephus tells us that in the Temple Mount area, at the main part of the celebration of the Feast of Passover, 
there were about 100,000 Jews that would come from all over the Roman Empire on Temple Mount. So if you can imagine in that courtyard, 500,000 people like Balloon Fiesta Park. In fact, on uh, any given Ascension Sunday there, they have about 100,000 people. So imagine all of Balloon Fiesta Park in that temple area. So it was quite a large area. In fact, from one corner to the other corner is over a quarter of a mile. So just looking at it, it doesn't give you a perspective of the size. Of course, what if this is the temple will be destroyed? Yes. Which temple? That's already gone. Well, that's the temple that in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about it being destroyed. And he alludes to it also in chapter 23. That's it. No, no. No, it's 70 AD. It's a very, very important date in the first century. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I just want you to have a kind of a mental picture. Now, there are two words in the Greek text that refer to the temple. One of them refers to the temple complex. In other words, this whole area, this big square. That is what is in reference here. Now, there's another word that refers to the, the kind of the tall structure there, the temple itself. Different word. That's where the Holy of Holies existed, and that's where God in the Old Testament until when? Remember when the glory of God left the temple? In the the book of Ezekiel. We looked at those passages in that quick overview of Ezekiel. That's where God would manifest himself publicly and visibly to the nation of Israel in, in that portion. So there's a word that refers to it specifically. We'll distinguish those later on. But I want you to have a mental picture there. Go ahead and read uh, verse 46. Now, this kind of gives you what's going on in terms of these leaders. In that verse 23, we have basically Jewish leaders there. Keep reading. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Okay, they want to kill him. They want to seize him. They want to arrest him. But they're hindered because he's popular amongst the people. Connie, do you want to read uh, 2215? Okay, now another group comes. Now, you have a series of confrontations. They come, they challenge him, they challenge his authority, they ask him these questions. These are gotcha questions. The gotcha questions didn't start with the media in the 21st century. They started way back in the 1st century. They're trying to catch him, they're trying to trap him. So here's a group, another group, Pharisees. Now read the next verse, verse 23 of chapter 22. The same day, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. Okay, a different group. Pharisees were more the teachers of the law. The Sadducees tended to be a little more political, more liberal. They were still very religious. They were part of the leadership. Many of them were part of the Supreme Court of Israel, called the Sanhedrin. So they are addressing him. And now, 34 and 35, you got that? But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying... Okay, testing him would be a better translation, actually. Tempting or testing. Tempting in the in the sense of trying to lure him into some gotcha situation. All right? And then read verse 46. I'm just giving you the passages that kind of summarize this whole passage, chapters 21 and 22. They're trying to find an angle to somehow catch him in order to accuse him, in order to crucify him. Now, one of the things that Matthew stresses is they can't do it because he's innocent. He is sinless. He is, in fact, the Messiah. You got verse 46? None of the Pharisees could answer Jesus' question. And after that day, no one was brave enough to ask him any more questions. Okay, so they're not able to ask him any more questions. So the occasion has not arisen yet, so there's a little bit of more ministry, and then eventually, remember, he's betrayed, and there's false witnesses, and eventually it goes to the cross. But this gives you the setting of chapter 23, so that we understand what's going on. So in 21 and 22, the nation has rejected their Messiah. So Jesus turns around and does the same to them, and he must. 
Because Messiah must be accepted by the nation. How do you rule unless the people are with you? So they've rejected him, so he has to reject the nation. And that's the setting of the Olivet Discourse. So the question is, if the nation rejected him and he rejects the nation, what happened to the kingdom? The Olivet Discourse explains that. So that's the setting. That's the, the context. So he, in chapter 23, the whole chapter is Jesus rejecting the nation in a very severe manner, and he also predicts the destruction of the nation and the destruction of the city, which also is alluded to in the Olivet Discourse. And one of the things that he's going to point out to the leaders, and let's read there, verse 1 again. We read this last time, but somebody else read it. Who's got it? Linda, you got it? Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach what they do not practice. Okay, we read this last time, but let me give you a little bit more detail. First of all, who is there on this occasion? The crowds and who else? The disciples. They're mentioned. But it is assumed amongst the crowds, because he's going to address them later, that you are absolutely correct, the Pharisees are amongst the multitude. They're not named here, but obviously they were amongst the multitudes that are mentioned here. Okay? Now I'm going to show you a synagogue at Chorazin, because there's an interesting archaeological find there. Did you notice the little word there in... Uh, yeah, Moses' seat. The scribes and Pharisees seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Archaeologists have found such a chair in many synagogues in not only Israel, but other locations as well. There's one in Chorazin. But first of all, this is, and by the way, this is the an archaeological site that you can visit if you can visit Israel. This is a Jewish synagogue. And remember Chorazin is where? Northern, not quite on the shore. It's a little bit inland, off the shore, but it's not too far from Capernaum, not too far from Bethsaida, some of those cities that are on the shore. And this is would have been a Jewish community, and this is a reconstruction of what remains of a synagogue there. So, the audience, multitudes that include Pharisees and disciples... And keep in mind, this is in a context where the law is still in force. That's why he says, obey these, what they teach, but don't do what? Don't do what they do, because that is hypocrisy to say one thing and to do something else, by definition. So the main theme, or the main sin, is hypocrisy. And by the way, Jesus in the Gospels condemns hypocrisy more than he does immorality or things relating to morals like thievery or those sort of things. One of the main sins that Jesus condemns is hypocrisy. Giving the appearance of one thing, but in reality being something very, very different in the inside. And that's the essence of these woes that we'll briefly touch on as well. Well, anyway, here's what archaeologists consider in at least this synagogue, the seat of Moses. It was the place where an authoritative rabbi would sit when he was teaching the law of Moses. In other words, each Sabbath, they would open up the scroll, primarily the Pentateuch, the scrolls of Moses, the law of Moses, and they would read a portion. And when the chief rabbi or an invited guest prominent Jewish rabbi or Jewish leader, he would come and he would be seated on the seat of Moses because he's reading from the scroll of Moses. And that's what's in reference here, more than likely. At least archaeologists believe that that's what it would have looked like, at least in Chorazin, the seat of Moses. Make sense? So now you have a mental picture of this little incident here. No, that's just to support the... uh, because that's all that they found. In other words, they didn't find the bottom portion of it. They didn't find the wood. The wood is... 
<laughs> you guys focus on the wrong things. <laughs> yeah. Focus on the seat of Moses and what Moses said. So, chapters 23, verses 1 through 12, basically focus on the disciples and what Jesus is doing there is warning them, don't do what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. They sit on the seat of Moses and they teach the law and you are to observe the law because they're under the law still. It's not till after Jesus is crucified and he establishes the church that we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. He institutes a new covenant in the Last Supper, if you remember. So this group is still under the law. These are Jewish people under the law, so they are to observe the law. And they are to obey what Moses has proclaimed, because that is the standard that was set in that time frame, in the time frame that Jesus is living. But, don't live, so he has regard for the authority of the leaders, but they are not to live the lifestyle of the leaders, because it's inconsistent with what Moses taught. And that's essentially hypocrisy. So that's the first 12 verses there. Now he's going to address these leaders directly, and the main thing that he's going to do is point out their hypocrisy. Now I'm not going to go through each one of them. Let me just briefly summarize. The, the first one is, and this is very important, it deals primarily with obstacles to the kingdom. In other words, the leaders, instead of helping people to understand the concept of the kingdom that Jesus announced was near, if they accepted him, they are actually obstacles. And you can read the verses there. And the main thing there is they are not only in the seed of Moses, but they are distorting the law of Moses. False doctrine, by the way. False teaching which many of the churches are plagued with, is more dangerous than perhaps anything else in Scripture. False doctrine. So he starts off with issues relating to what you believe. So it's important that you understand and know what the Scriptures teach. That was a problem in the first century. They had to understand what Moses taught. That was the Scriptures of the first century. But the Pharisees and other religious leaders... They had taken those laws and added all kinds of oral tradition and other regulations and stipulations and things that were not part of the law. And they were imposing this burden on the people. That's alluded to in this passage. Make sense? And as a result, they had distorted and they were teaching really a false doctrine. So false doctrine very important that you avoid and you be able to detect it. And you can only do that when you know what the real thing is, when you know the scriptures. So it's so important. This is a problem in the first century, problem in the church today. The second one, which if you're, some of your versions will have it in brackets because it, there's a textual problem there. And most of the commentators think that it's probably not part of what Jesus did. He had seven, but if you include this, there's eight. But it is inspired because this one does occur in another place in Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, and it's believed that some scribe that was copying said, well, did he leave this one out and he included it? And then others copied it. Does that make sense? Anyway, that one deals with religious hypocrisy. The third one deals with false conversions. If you have false doctrine that you're teaching you're going to end up with false conversions. And they were very zealous of making what are called proselytes. In other words, conversions to Judaism. And they were converting them to this false doctrine and these false ideas, not to the truth of Scripture. And as a result, he talks about them being, what does it say there? Uh, Therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. In other words, their sins are not forgiven. They're under more condemnation. Uh, let's see, that's not it. That's, that's 14. 15 is, make them twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And he's referring to the Pharisees. In other words, they will go straight to eternal punishment as a result of false doctrine, false conversions. 
That's number three. The fourth one is perversion of truth. And Jesus has taught on that before, and he wants you, if you make a commitment, then stick to it. Make your yes, yes, and your no, no. In other words, stick to your word. So they perverted the truth. There was hypocrisy in tithing, some of the laws of Israel. Problem with outward righteousness. In other words, they appeared righteous on the outside, but inwardly were not. And I want to focus on one, because I've got some photos that will help you to kind of put it in perspective. Let's read 27 and 28. Somebody read those two verses. This is just one of them. This would be number 7 if you include the one in verse 14, or it would be number 6 if you don't include it. Who's got that? Go ahead. 23, verses 27 and 28. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you are hypocrites. You are like tombs that are painted white. Outside those tombs look fine, but inside they are full of the bones of dead people and all kinds of unclean. Okay, he uses an illustration there that was very common in Israel and is common today. Notice the photograph here. This is from the Mount of Olives, and they will be here in a moment. They're in Temple Mount, and the wall back over here, this long wall, this was part of Temple Mount. It gives you a little bit of perspective of the size of it. And the temple in the first century is not, is, the location is not shown on the map. But what I've got here are these tombs overlooking that. And by the way, I'm going to show you the next photograph. All of this area also has these tombs. I'll show you a photograph of that one that you're familiar with that I used with the book of Hebrews. But notice bright white coloring. Now these are not as bright and white as they would have been in the first century. On Pentecost, when you have visitors that came from all over the Roman Empire... They would be walking around Temple Mount, these areas here. And remember, if you're a Jew, one of the Mosaic stipulations is you are not to what? Touch dead bodies. And in their mind, if you touched even the tomb or the place of the dead body, it would what? It would make you unclean, and you would not be able to celebrate the Passover because you would have to go through the ritual of uncleanness and uh, get back into a right standing. So they would whitewash the tombs so that they could be clearly identified so no one would have an excuse and to alert people that that was the case. So he's taking this illustration and he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs because what? That was an illustration of them. On the outside, they were gleaming. They were spectacular on the outside, but what were they on the inside? If you open up one of those tombs, what do you got? Corruption, deadness, bones, uncleanness. And if it's a fresh tomb, odor. Okay? All these negatives. That's what he's talking about. And that's what he's accusing them of. You are like these whitewashed tombs that were very visible all over the place. So they're very common. In fact... This is the golden gate that I used for the book of Hebrews there. All of these along that wall, these are just ancient tombs. Some of them are older and some of them are not as old, but they're all very old. And so they'd be all over the place, particularly in this area. And in the first century, they existed in these locations as well. Cunning. I guess if the law says you're not supposed to go near tombs, why would you move around the gate? Because well, these probably came later, after the gate was already, uh, yeah, sealed. Right. Good question, though. So, he condemns the hypocrisy of the leaders, and because the nation followed the leaders. What was the cry of the crowd when Pilate wanted to release Barabbas? They said, no, we don't want Barabbas, we want you to crucify Jesus. He asked, what shall I do with him? Crucify the crowds. They followed the leaders ultimately. So it was not just the leaders, the crowd in this case followed. So he condemns the nation. So he moves from the leaders, I think, to the nation. I think it's general, beginning in verse 33 to 36. Make sense? You following? And he does it in a very stinging way. Now, what he's doing is he's not prior passage when he says, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites. 
What he's doing, he's not cursing them. Or he's not speaking in terms of something that he wishes. In fact, we're going to see in the next paragraph here that it breaks his heart. What he's doing is what a prophet did in the Old Testament. And if you read, for example, Amos, the prophet Amos, and other passages, the prophets, when things were hopeless, they would pronounce woes, not impose woes. They This would be a verdict. This would be a judgment. In other words, this is your condition. This is the situation. This is the fact of where you're at. And it's dreadful. It's a woe. And he's doing the same thing that the prophets did in the Old Testament. He's pronouncing, and each one of these begins with woe, Pharisees, and then he gives the reason why they have this condition. He explains, because this is who you are. And now he comes to the conclusion here, and this is the condemnation of the nation. In other words, they are standing condemned. In verse 33, he uses two interesting words. You vipers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Now, who used that last phrase before in the Gospel of Matthew? Very beginning. Does anyone remember? John the Baptist described the same group. They haven't changed since John the Baptist. Three years earlier, early part of life of Christ, they remained a brood of vipers. And these are both uh, poisonous snakes. In other words, what they impose on people is poisonous. It's deadly. In that one verse that we looked at that I kind of summarized there, it makes people sons of hell. And that's what he's talking about here. And in fact, he repeats the same idea. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Okay, I'm going to be a liberal now, and I'm going to claim that hell does not exist in the Bible. Can anyone explain what I'm saying? And that's a true statement. Sounds liberal, but it's a true statement. The word hell does not occur in the Bible. Well, you say, well, there it is, right there. 2333, and it was also in what? It was also in verse 15. What do you say? What do you mean the word hell doesn't occur in the Bible? It's translated hell in other places as well? Let me... Not Diana. Gehenna. And in fact, in the original language, in the Greek text, how will you escape the sentence of Gehenna? Okay? I'm going to show you a picture of so-called hell in a moment. First of all, what we have here is judgment. In other words, God is pronouncing the sentence that the nation of Israel is under. And he's done this already. In other words, he has already called them hypocrites seven times in these seven or eight woes. He's already called them hypocrites. So he's using judgmental language. He has described them as sons of hell, making others more sons of hell than them, Pharisees. But it extends to the people in general, but particularly the leaders. They're called what? In those eight woes, blind guides. In other words, they do not know the truth. They do not see the truth. So what they give to others that they teach, they do not know about. In other words, they're blind to the things that are real, the things that are true in Scripture. They've so distorted Scripture that they don't see Scripture and they don't teach it. False teachers. He also calls them fools. In other words, this is foolish to believe anything apart from what the Bible teaches. And it's more foolish to try to teach others the same thing. He also calls them whitewashed tombs. We looked at that. They are totally corrupt. They look okay on the outside, but inside, full of corruption, deadness, uncleanness. And then now, he calls them snakes. Serpents and vipers. So right, very strong language. Why does he say to observe then what they say to do? It says in Matthew 3, all things are forbidden. These do and observe. Observe the law. What they're saying, but not what they're doing. Right. So they're saying the law. In some cases. And sometimes it's a distortion of the law. 
what I think the emphasis there, they sit in the seat of Moses, so when they read Moses, they're reading the law, but when they teach, their doctrine is distorted. Okay, serpents and vipers. And then how will you escape the sentence of hell? Let's go back to this concept. It's unfortunate, but when the King James translated from the original Greek, it translated Gehenna with the word hell, but the word hell really does not occur anywhere in the New Testament. Generally, when it's translated hell, it's a translation of Gehenna. And to us, it's kind of cryptic, So, and it was so when the King James writers or translators translated it. So they tried to simplify it, and they developed this word hell to kind of convey it. But Gehenna is a symbol, and was a symbol throughout Jewish history, or at least later history, and was an accepted symbol for hell itself. So the Bible does teach the concept of hell, even though what I said is correct, the word itself does not occur. The word is Gehenna. And what it is, it has a background. In the Old Testament, there was a valley outside of Jerusalem. See the arrow there? It's called, see the words there? It's called the Hinnom Valley, or the Valley of Gehenna. In other words, the same word, it's just spelled a little bit different. It's referring to this Valley of Gehenna. Now, in Old Testament times, the Gentile, pagan, unbelieving Canaanites sacrificed children in that valley as part of their worship of Baal and the false gods of Baal. They sacrificed their children there and probably aborted some as well, I bet. But they sacrificed children there so that the nation of Israel throughout its history, viewed that valley as cursed because of what happened amongst the Canaanites in their worship of Baal. And because it was cursed, over time it became the the city dump, the place where people would throw their garbage. George. George takes a lot of stuff that he takes out of the apartments that I use and takes them to the dump. Now the dump here is not always burning, but the way they got rid of the trash, was that they would uh, burn it. So it was like a continual fire. It was always burning because they had a lot of trash and it was always burning. So because of that connotation, there was corruption there, there was deadness there, there was slop, there was stuff that was burnt and it was always burning. There were worms, there were all kinds of evil things there. The Valley of Gehenna became a symbol, and when Jesus is using it, he's using it in this symbolic way to refer to a place of eternal punishment. It's as gruesome, or more so, than that Valley of Hinnom. So that's where it was located in first century, this is a map of first century Jerusalem, Temple Mount, or right there, Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives, over there. See that? And there's a photograph of the Hinnom Valley today. Now it's kind of lush and green. But if you can imagine, in Jesus' day, it was a trash heap. It was a dump. It was a place where the city dumped all of its garbage. And today it's right, obviously, in the center of Jerusalem, and it's somewhat of a park today. So that's hell. Picture of hell. Hmm? Uh, yeah. Today, obviously, the city has extended in that direction and somewhat goes around the Mount of Olives as well. The valley itself is... Yeah, the valley is... Yeah. And I could show you other photographs. There's, it's real pretty up in this area, but I showed you the rocky part there. So that's Gehenna. When you read in your Bible, hell, more than likely, it's Gehenna with this background... It's a symbol of eternal punishment. Now, just to clarify, let me give you kind of what the Bible teaches concerning the afterlife. There's obviously heaven. The Old Testament and the New Testament refers to Hades, or the Old Testament word is Sheol, the Hebrew word Sheol, and it's kind of a transliteration. And actually, Hades is something of a transliteration. That is not hell. In the Jewish 
thinking, and in the Old Testament, Hades, or Sheol, was just the place of the dead. And there are many, many verses in the Old Testament. And it's associated sometimes with the places underground where people were buried. Sometimes it refers to deep underground. It's just simply the place of the dead. And the Greek word there is Hades, where we get Hades, obviously, transliteration. And there's also in the book of Revelation, the abyss. Remember, Satan is cast into the abyss, and then in another passage, these demons come out of the abyss. Seems to be a different place. And then there's Gehenna. This is hell. Make a fire. That is hell. Okay? So heaven, it's where God abides, basically, our ultimate home of believers, where angels dwell as well. Hades, place of the dead. The abyss is like a prison of demons. It's referred to in the Bible. Gehenna is the symbol of hell. So that's what we have in this passage here. Make sense? And actual hell, there is a place of eternal confinement that Gehenna is the symbol of. And that occurs in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. That's the ultimate place of destiny. That is hell. And it is designed for Satan and the demons. That's their destiny. And also the place where unbelievers ultimately end up. Those that never trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible does teach the concept and uses an English word to substitute for a symbolic word, Gehenna. Understand that? Not a big thing, but just so you know. Okay. 34. Therefore. Therefore what? What did he say in 33? This is their condemnation. They are sons of eternal punishment. They're sons of Gehenna, which is the symbol for eternal punishment. Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Who are those in this context? These are the disciples. This is the, this is what he's talking about after he dies. In fact, he might even include himself because he acted like a prophet. He gave revelation. He was wise. He was a teacher of, of the law, the Old Testament. He was a scribe. He would, could be considered like a scribe. He said, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And what are they going to do with them? To confirm that the sentence is, is real, is true. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of the disciples were crucified. Now, that's not mentioned in the Bible. But there's historical accounts that refer to how some of the disciples died. There's a tradition that Peter was what? Crucified upside down. Because he didn't feel like he could be crucified like Christ was. So he, I guess they crucified him upside down. He certainly scourged some of them. Read the book of Acts. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. We have accounts of that in the book of Acts. And persecute from city to city. That happened. In fact, it was not an easy time in the first century to be a believer. It was the Nero, and, uh, the Nero persecutions, and then later on the persecutions under Domitian. And some of those, particularly under Nero, were instigated by Jewish people. And in the book of Acts, we have the Jewish leaders persecuting Peter and the other disciples as well. And Paul suffered as well. So that's verse 34. Verse 35, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. In other words, this is a special generation that saw the coming of Messiah, had the benefit of the writings of all of the prophets. And what did Israel do with their prophets? They killed them. Some of them were stoned. And, and Jeremiah, remember, he was thrown in a pit. And had they not got him out, he would have died there. And most of the prophets, if not all of them, were killed by the nation of Israel. So their guilt is evident, and particularly that generation. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. Wow, that's quite a, quite a damning sentence. It says all. Yeah. Because they're not done. They're going to persecute these that he sent to. And he 
specifies from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Did you know that Abel, where's Abel? Book of Genesis. He is one of the first sons of Adam and Eve, or he is the second son, right? He's the second son. Cain is the first son. Cain slays Abel. Jesus says he was a prophet. So he's a righteous preacher of truth. He's a teacher of truth. Abel. To the blood of Zechariah, now in Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles makes the point that Zechariah was the last prophet, even though in the Bible Malachi is the, the last one that we have a record. But in terms of, I guess, how long they lived, Zechariah would be the last. So from the, all the way from Abel, and Abel obviously was killed, remember, by his own brother, and the rest of Israel's history later on with the prophets, the record is that they killed the prophets. All the way to Zechariah. Uh, I had to read the last part. The son of Zechariah, uh, this is just identifying him, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Zechariah was murdered. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon, and what's key here, this generation. And what he's going to do in the Olivet Discourse, he's going to talk about destruction. This alludes to the destruction of the nation of Israel in the first century. In other words, a judgment is coming on that generation in the first century. That was 70 AD. The temple was destroyed, and the, the city was destroyed. In fact, Everything that came later was built on the foundation stones that remained, but the, the buildings themselves were destroyed. And everything was in ruins. The Jews were scattered throughout the Roman Empire that began in 70 AD, and a, the majority of it was done there. There were pockets that continued even into the second century where Jews were eventually scattered throughout the world. And they remained scattered until that passage that we saw in Ezekiel chapter... What, does anybody remember the chapter? 37, yes, very very good. 37, where it talks about God regathering them, and in 1948 they were regathered. But in 70 AD they were scattered, and basically the nation no longer existed in terms of that generation. Now, the people continued to exist and maintain their heritage, etc., such that there would be Jewish people in 1948 to begin the reestablishment. So there's the condemnation of the nation, the destruction of the nation. And 37 to 39, this causes the heart of Christ to break. And let me just introduce a little bit of it and... When we come back to the Olivet Discourse, we'll expand this a little bit and then get into the text itself. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is with a broken heart, shows his love. He wishes things were different, but they're not. There has to be a judgment. He wishes that they had responded. He wishes that they had accepted him, that he may be able to establish the kingdom. But they did not. So, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and he reminds you, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent sent to her. He reiterates it. And by the way, in Israel, there are places you can visit tombs of Haggai and Zechariah. They're near this Russian Orthodox church. So, in the first century, they would have been evident, and even to this day, you can see some of the places where these prophets were killed, and Zechariah was killed where? Between the temple and and the altar. Okay, And just make it evident, Absalom's tomb, there's these tombs all over. Some of them dedicated to prophets. Tombs of the prophets. This is that same area. In fact, this is that other photograph. These are all tombs in this area. In Israel. You can see them today if you go visit. In fact, let's plan a trip. Okay. Hey, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you. Here's a tender Jesus. I wanted to gather you like a hen, like a mother. The tenderness of a mother hen. I wanted to gather you together to myself. But they go contrary to nature. You know, chicks, when there's danger, they flee to the mother. 
hide underneath. Israel left and tried to kill the mother. The way of a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. In other words, their hearts were far from him. Eventually they killed him. Jenny. He could say that today, yes. We've departed from our biblical foundation. Very good. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. In other words, he's going to leave. He's going to depart. And when Messiah leaves, Israel's temple is empty. And that's probably an allusion to the temple. There's no presence of God. There's no presence of the glory of God. And then the last verse there, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me. He's leaving, departing. Until there's hope. There's a future. There's another generation. Later on, and that generation, God is going to work in them. The Olivet Discourse is going to talk about that future generation. That future generation will be converted. And what we see now in Israel may be the beginning of God establishing the nation politically, physically, to prepare for a conversion. And when they are converted, they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when that happens, Messiah will come. That's your setting to the Olivet Discourse. A generation, we consider a generation as 20 years. A generation, I think, is beyond that. Yeah, generally 40 years in the Old Testament. Yeah, we'll talk some more about that because he's going to use that word. He's going to refer to this generation in the Olivet Discourse. He's not talking about the first century generation. It's a different generation. I'll give you the evidence for that. Who wants to close for us? Go ahead. Father, you are God, and we just appreciate you... Uh, Revealing yourself through your word. We just ask that you will help us to understand it, Lord. We just pray that you will uh, continue to work and, and bless Ray in his life and his teaching that, uh, well, your teachings that he is uh, educating us on, Lord. We just want to thank you for this time. I just ask that you'll be with everyone here this morning. Just guide them and bless them. We just pray this in your name. Amen. That's setting the